brought to you by RunToGold.com, the premier source for monetary science applied to geopolitical, international, and economic financial news and events. Welcome back to the 29th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. This will be an interview that I had on Contrary Investors Cafe, where I discuss money versus currency and a little bit of the derivatives problem, and also talk about the new book, The Great Credit Contraction. everyone and welcome to Jim Willie and Friends. We're here with our friend Trace Meyer today. How are you, Trace? I'm doing great. Well, that's good. I'm glad one of us is. Um, just to <laughs> let our listeners know, I'm going to be the quiet one today. We're going to let Trace do all the talking because this one's been suffering from bronchitis for a week. How fun is that? <laughs> Not very fun at all. No, no. So what you got for us today, Trace? Well, I just released a new book. Uh, I think we talked about it last month. It's called The Great Credit Contraction. And in this book, I talk about, it's essentially an autopsy on the worldwide financial and monetary system. I march through uh, what money is. You know, a lot of people, we, we throw out these terms like money and currency, but nobody really defines them. Uh, if I were to ask, someone on the street, well, what is money? I mean, I'd get all types of different answers from people. And so I actually go in and I, it's just right off the bat, right in chapter one, I start talking about the differences between money, money substitutes, and illusions. And all three of these can be currency. And so to be helpful, well, what is currency? Currency is that medium of exchange that we use in ordinary daily transactions. And, of course, it can be either of these three. And so what do we use in our ordinary daily transactions? Well, for the last 800 years, we've actually moved from using money, using money substitutes, to using illusions. And this has all happened uh, fairly gradually over hundreds of years. But each time we move away from money, we move up this liquidity pyramid. We move into a less safe and a more risky uh, allocation of capital. And so we move from money. So what is money? Well, money has got to be a tangible asset. And the reason it has to be a tangible asset is so that when it's used in, an, in, an, in a transaction, that transaction is extinguished uh, as opposed to being settled. See, when we, when we have a transaction and it's settled, then the two parties, they, they go their separate ways. For example, I give, uh, I give Michelle a pizza and Michelle gives me a $20 Federal Reserve note. Well, the, the, the transaction is settled uh, when, the, when the currency changes hands. However, when I get that, that Federal Reserve note, well, that's an illusion, and it's subject to, to risk that's associated with its purchasing power. And so I actually have to find uh, some greater fool than me to take that $20 note in exchange for purchasing power before it's extinguished. Uh, on the other hand, when money is used, uh, because it's a tangible asset, then the then when that transaction takes place, it's settled and extinguished at the same time. For example, I give the pizza, and uh, well, Michelle gives me the pizza, and I give a one ounce uh, silver coin. Well, the silver coin has value in itself, and so the the transaction is extinguished. Well, 
money functioned as currency for thousands of years. And surprisingly, humanity didn't come to an end like because we used money as currency. Well, over time, uh, we started issuing, well, people started issuing money substitutes. It would be a claim on money. It would be a payable on demand. Uh, there's a certain amount of gold deposited at the treasury, payable on demand. We'd have these money substitutes. Well, these money substitutes, they circulated as currency for a long time. They started back in the 17th century at the Bank of England, and eventually Isaac Newton developed the gold standard, which pegged these money substitutes to uh, a certain amount of metal uh, bullion because the, the gold and silver uh, won their, their way to become currency because they're the most fungible and uh, and have the lowest cost associated with using them as currency. So they, they were the currency, but, oh, there's money to be made. There's a profit to be made by using money substitutes as currency. So as then the money substitutes began, began to grow in power, and they were declared legal tender by lots of governments, like the Bank of England or France. And, and so... The capital is moving up this liquidity pyramid. It's getting less safe and less liquid because sometimes these money substitutes, they would become worthless because the government that was backing them would become uh, worthless or it would change. And so all of a sudden, their little irredeemable tickets, usually paper tickets, would become worthless. And that uh, usually happens through a currency event known as hyperinflation. Well, anyways, <clears throat> so for hundreds of years, we were moving with these money substitutes. And eventually, uh, Weimar Germany hyperinflated, and it led to the rise of Hitler, and eventually there was World War II. And out of World War II came uh, Bretton Woods and came the International Monetary Fund. And the bright idea, the brilliant idea that came out of that was, well, we'll make all the other money substitutes convertible into a single money substitute, which would be the dollar. So the French franc and the German mark and all these different money substitutes, they were convertible into the dollar. And then the dollar was convertible into gold. So all of these money substitutes were redeemable, actually, for another money substitute. So we have a continuing of this credit expansion. We have a continuing of this capital moving into less safe, less risky assets. And eventually, uh, like always happens, because governments are just looting and killing machines, and one of the best ways they can loot a lot of money from people is through their what's used as the currency. Well, like every other government in all of history, the, the United States government decides to uh, declare bankruptcy on their promise to pay money in exchange for the, their money substitutes that issued. And so in 1968 and also in 1971, uh, the government no longer honored the promise no longer honored the contract that they had made to pay silver payable on demand or to pay gold uh, to people who demanded it. And so that was an international bankruptcy in 1971 by the U.S. government. Uh, the French wanted gold for their dollars. The U.S. said, oh, sorry, we're going to keep the gold and you can keep our little uh, worthless, irredeemable bits of paper. And so that launched the world into this whole new era where the world reserve currency was no longer either money or a money substitute, but was merely just an illusion. It was, a, it was an instrument that had no value in itself. And that really 
uh, is the root cause of all the problems that we currently have in our in our monetary system. Because out of this worthlessness of this asset, well, we've had to develop all different types of, of assets to hedge against that risk of of purchasing power when transactions are settled versus extinguished. And so we've developed all these types of, of instruments. We've, we've developed a credit default swaps, which are a form of OTC derivative. We've developed interest rate swaps, which are a form of OTC derivative. And, and so during this great credit expansion, we've now created a liquidity pyramid that's got about in my estimation, $1,600 trillion worth of different assets in it. Most of these comprised of OTC derivatives. And Warren Buffett, as we know, he's not a fan of these OTC derivatives, and he's actually just lost a few billion dollars on them. But he called them, in one of his letters to shareholders, he called them financial weapons of mass destruction. And so what we have now is we've got a bunch of financial terrorists who are costumed in government regalia like Timothy Geithner or Hank Paulson, and they're detonating these financial weapons of mass destruction within uh, the largest uh, corporations in the world. They've, they've vaporized their sterns, they've vaporized long-term capital management, Enron, you know, those those firms from the past, well, those were, were all vaporized by OTC derivatives. We've also seen Lehman Brothers. Uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, Citigroup, Bank of America, they're on the ropes. All of these are heavy dealers in these derivatives. And then we have the linchpin of all of them, which is AIG. And so AIG, because they're the reinsurance group, they're the ones that, that guarantee other people's OTC derivatives. So they guarantee Lehman Brothers derivatives, or they'll guarantee other, other derivatives that are written by other other institutions. Well, anyways, this all raises the specter of something called counterparty risk, because an illusion and a money substitute are subject to counterparty risk. In other words, they're subject to the financial capacity of the counterparty to the contract to perform. So the United States government back in 1971, they failed as a counterparty. They had promised to deliver gold. They failed to deliver, probably because they didn't have the financial capacity to, because they had just printed a bunch of their money substitutes out of thin air. Because remember, they're looting and killing machines. And so they printed a bunch out of thin air to loot in order to kill in Vietnam. And so they were a failed counterparty. Well, now we've got other failed counterparties. We've got Lehman Brothers, which is a giant failed counterparty, trillion-dollar balance sheet, Bear Stearns. Uh, Bank of America, uh, Citigroup, both uh, trillion-dollar balance sheets that are on the ropes. And these failing counterparties, what happens is these derivative contracts are usually accounted for based on their nominal, uh, based on what's called the nominal amount and not the notional amount. And so to illustrate this, I'll use an analogy. Uh, Let's say that we've got a house, and on the house we've got fire insurance. And so the house is worth, we'll say, $100,000, which might be generous in the current market. But these are just numbers. So we've got a $100,000 house, and we've got a $100,000 fire insurance contract uh, on the house written by, we'll say, Lehman Brothers before they went bankrupt. And the probability...
uh, 1%. So Lehman Brothers carries the liability of the, of the house ins- of the fire insurance uh, on their balance sheet as a liability for only $1,000. And the person who owns the house carries it as an asset of $1,000, and then they make their, their payments uh, for that insurance. Well, because these derivatives are actually pretty hard to value and because we have a lot of incentive to maximize assets if we own them and minimize liabilities if we owe them, uh, what uh, Lehman Brothers has decided to do is they're, MI, they're really smart mathematicians. Uh, they've decided to figure out that this liability is actually only worth $500. So they carry it as a liability of $500. And the person who owns the insurance contract, who owns the right, if uh, the house burns down to be paid the full 100000 well, they, they've decided, their mathematicians, they say, oh, well, it's worth $1,500. So now we've got Lehman Brothers with a $500 liability, and we've got the corresponding uh, asset worth $1,500. <laughs> so we see a little bit of mismatch between the valuation of the assets and the liabilities here. But all of that's just fine because uh, we use we don't have to implement uh, FAS 157, which is mark-to-market. We don't have to value things for what they're really worth. And I just wrote an article on this called uh, Fair Value Lying. And so that's what we're doing. We've got all these giant corporations that are lying about the value of their assets and their liabilities. And then, all of a sudden, uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, they go bankrupt because they had to pay out uh, too many of these fire insurance contracts. And so, now, someone owns uh, a, a contract on the house to protect against fire, but the counterparty to that is gone. So, of course, uh, you know, what's the value of that, of that contract? Well... You know, if we're using fair value lying, well, the, the liability might go into bankruptcy court and be bought up by someone who buys the other assets. So in that case, uh, it might still have value, even though the person's bankrupt. At least that's what our wonderful people at the SEC seem to think. But in reality, we know that it's worthless. And because it's worthless, we have to figure out, uh, well, what happened? Now, the house hasn't turned down yet. So what happens if the house does burn down? Well, the notional amount, the $100,000 is owed, becomes the nominal amount. So no longer is it this small $1,000 amount, but it becomes the full 100000 And so that's actually what's happening with a lot of these OTC derivatives, is that they're the nominal amounts that they're carried on the balance sheet that, which with Lehman Brothers, it was maybe a trillion dollars. Well, they're ballooning into these huge notional amounts uh, of, of multiple trillions or tens of trillions or even hundreds of trillions in some cases. Like J.P. Morgan has over has about a hundred trillion of notional amount of, of OTC derivatives. No one knows how to really value these. And so this is the, the problem that we run into with this credit expansion. For 800 years, capital has been moving up into less safe, less liquid assets. And now, uh, like a ball thrown into the air, eventually gravity asserts itself. I mean, this is a basic economic law. And and the zenith of this expansion was reached, and now it's beginning to fall down. 
and the system doesn't collapse, but it evaporates, uh, that $1,000 asset on the balance sheet or $1,500 asset, it just evaporates into nothing. It becomes absolutely worthless. It just, it just evaporates. So people are like, well, where'd all the money go? Well, really, what the what they're what they're asking is, well, where would all the illusions go? And the answer is, well, they evaporated; <laughs> they, they just dissipated into nothing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, all the debt remains on the balance sheet with the different companies or individuals. So you have the value of the assets just completely dissipate into thin air, while at the same time you have these. Uh, you still owe these illusions, <laughs> which you have to then go out and try and find. So now, because uh, the system reached the zenith and has begun to uh, go the other way, we're we're in what's called the Great Credit Contraction. This is uh, what I've written my book about. And during the Great Credit Expansion, well, there, we had strategies for growing and preserving wealth. such a 
logical and organized manner in which it's done is really uh, in place to teach people these basics of monetary science and economic law so they can at least understand what's going on. Because a lot of these inmates running the asylum, I mean, they're infected with the financial insanity virus, and they genuinely think uh, because bad economic laws are taught everywhere, they genuinely think that when they throw the rock in the air, that it'll just keep going up instead of coming down. And so a lot of people think that also. And so, you know, they've seen their 401ks or their uh, other assets just kind of decline in value. And they think, oh, well, I don't know what's going on. Well, yeah, I mean, you really got to have a good grounding in basic economic law. So that's uh, how the book's written and kind of its purpose is to help educate people on just some of the basics like the law of gravity. Because, I mean, think of how difficult it'd be to build buildings or, or anything else if you didn't even understand the law of gravity. It'd just be, <laughs> you wouldn't do very well. So anyway, that's a little bit about the book and my website. And yeah, we'll definitely have to continue this conversation on, uh, on the next interview. Well, hopefully we'll do that soon. We want to thank you for coming on today. I know you've got a busy day ahead. So thank you for getting an early start and taking time to join us today. Oh, you're welcome, Michelle. Well, I hope you liked that first uh, introduction to The Great Credit Contraction. It's an 88-page book uh, available for immediate download, and I'd recommend everyone get a copy. I went over just the first few subsections of the first chapter. Well, you've been listening to the 29th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. You've been listening to the RunToGold.com podcast, the premier source for applied monetary science on the web.